0: turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9 and out of love and reverence for God's holy word. Please stand with me as we read this together. It's a delight to be back with you after a few weeks away from Redeemer Church, Redeemer's gathered worship. Uh, As you know, we've been working through uh, the book of Genesis over the past several months and over the past few weeks we've been working through the story of Noah. And Today we come to the end of the story of Noah in a Story that is a bit uh, less flattering to Noah and his family. But this is God's word and it is for our benefit and uh, upbuilding, so let us give attention to it. Here now, God's word starting in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So ends the reading of God's word. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious and loving, marvelous Lord, you love us with an eternal love. You see us you know us you know exactly what we need and you are a good father a father who gives good gifts who speaks to us clearly through your word and so father as we open up your word this morning we pray that you would indeed speak to us we pray that you by your spirit would open our ears to hear of your magnificent love for us that you might build us up that you might equip us for faithfulness that we might glorify and enjoy you this morning and all of our days. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, kids, I have a confession to make. I love to play hide and go seek. I don't mean I used to love to play it. I mean, I love to play it now as an adult. Uh, And as a family, we uh, played it quite a few times, more so when my boys were still at home, and actually, it got more fun as they got older, and the hiding places got more sophisticated, because, and the youth can probably see this as not a big surprise, uh, we are competitive, and I come to play, and I come to win. Uh, and um, obviously, in Hide and Go Seek, the The uh, number one name of the game is to find a spot where no one can find you. And the longer we'd lived in the house, the more we got to know all the normal spots. Uh, And so it was just a matter of systematically working through those spots in the house until we had found the person who was hiding. But every now and then, uh, the hider would find a spot that was so good that all the seekers had to give up and say, okay, we give up, you know, where are you? And here was the secret it was always a spot that was right in plain sight. And the eyes of the seekers would go right over where they were looking because everything looked perfectly normal. And friends, as a people, I think we are excellent at hiding in plain sight. You have things in your heart that you don't want anyone to know. Anything... You don't want anyone to see, you don't want anyone to know. It may be things that you have done, things that you have said, things that you have thought, things that you have seen, or it's been something that has done, been done to you or said about you. Something so humiliating to your core that uh, you want to hide it, personal intimate, ugly details that are like a black stain on your permanent record. Uh, An intensely tender spot in the midst of the diamond-hard armor that we put around ourselves. And if we were to put a name to this, it would be shame. Shame. Something a penetrating, humiliating Uh, aspect of our lives something that is so dangerous that we fear even broaching it with somebody else to ask well where do you feel shame because we don't want them to ask us it's a feeling of utter rejection and humiliation when we come to this uh, passage in genesis chapter 9 we know and love noah we know his story but this story is raw it's a story raw with the humanity of Noah the uh, a picture of the destruction of sin in the lives of Noah and his family it's a story of Noah's shame Uh, but it's a beautiful story at the same time because what we ought to see in this story is a picture of Noah's greatest son to come the Lord Jesus Christ who covers us And Noah, even in the midst of our shame. And so as we go through this passage, I'm going to follow three simple headings. There's shame exposed, shame covered, and the shamed one responds. So let's remember where we are in the story in Genesis so far. Ever since the fall, uh, we've been taught to look for a deliverer. Uh, God in the fall said that he was going to raise up a woman, a seed of the woman who would deliver us. And there would be two strands, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And immediately, Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel, and we are hopeful that Cain will be that seed of the woman who will be the deliverer. But immediately we find out that that's not the case. Cain murders his brother Abel and demonstrates his wickedness. He demonstrates that he is of the seed of the serpent. And then Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And we hope perhaps this is the deliverer. And yet he's not. He dies. And generation comes and generation goes. And if you remember the refrain in Genesis chapter 5, there was this man and he died and this man and he died. And then we come to Noah. And all of a sudden, our our attention is peaked because Noah finds favor with God. And we think, aha, all all this time generations have come and go, but wickedness has come and grown to the point where the hearts of uh, all mankind are evil continually. And God says, I'm going to start over. Creation is going to get a mulligan. And we're going to start over with Noah. And Noah, who has found favor with God, he and his family go into the ark, and God does just that. He destroys the earth with a flood. And we're hopeful because uh, Noah gets off the ark and he worships God. He, he establishes an altar. He offers a, a, a sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to God. And that's where we start off in our passage. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole of the earth was dispersed. And what better news could that be? Noah, the man who God found favor with, this man who worshiped God, who God destroyed wickedness and started over with them, all mankind is going to begin over with him. He's a second Adam. Wickedness has been destroyed. And yet, immediately, the wind is taken out of our sails. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah, who the Apostle Peter calls a herald of righteousness, who the book of Hebrews says he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is by faith, planted a vineyard, gathered the grapes, made wine, delighted in it, got drunk, and lay exposed in his tent. Not buzzed, not slightly refined in his drinking, he was passed out, knocked out, drunk on the floor, naked, and exposed." And to make matters worse, his son Ham comes in and discovers him. It says, uh, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So, do you catch what's going on here? Noah becomes naked and exposed, but in his tent. He's concealed in his tent. And Ham, for whatever reason, ends up in his tent and sees the nakedness of his father. Now, we don't know what brought him into that tent. It could have been that he was just coming by to say goodnight before he went to bed. It could have been that uh, he saw Noah getting a little silly while he was drinking the wine and wondered what in the world happened there. Or maybe this was the first time that anybody had even experimented with fermented drink and Tam was just a bit confused. But whatever the reason, he comes in the tent, he sees his father, and it's a jarring sight. It's a sight that you can't unsee. But now Ham has options. What's he going to do? Is he going to laugh it off or shrug it off and just try to forget it? As if that was possible? Or is he going to, in spite of uh, the nakedness of his father, he's going to cover him up like his brothers would do? But he does neither of those things, does he? Rather, he takes this offense which was inside the tent And brings it out of the tent and exposes it to his brothers by telling them what's going on. And it's essential for us to see that this theme of nakedness that we see in Scripture is associated with shame. Uh, If you remember back to the end of Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and unashamed, they had no shame. And yet, what happened immediately after the fall, immediately after they had sinned against God, they recognized, what? That they were naked. And they hid themselves. And so, all of a sudden, they had shame. And that's what we see here with Noah. He has become drunk. He's become naked and exposed. And Ham sees it and adds to that shame. And that's a, nakedness is a appropriate metaphor for shame isn't it because the thing that we don't want in the midst of our hearts is we don't want people to see we don't want people to see something that is buried deep within us it's the ugly parts of our lives that we want to hide from others and we're terrified that those things will be exposed that we will be humiliated and if brought to light it would harm our reputation would it not? Um, so consider in your life, what, what are those things that you don't want anybody to come even close to? Are they things that you have done, uh, things that you have said, things that you have thought? Um, it's an appropriate uh, application to think about alcohol as Noah was affected by alcohol and uh, often, some of our shameful activities come as a result of using alcohol. Uh, alcohol is a gift from the Lord, it's a blessing from God, and yet misused, it can cause a context where we are free and uninhibited to let the things that are in our heart to come out. Alcohol doesn't make you angry, it doesn't make you lewd, it doesn't make you silly, it gives providing a context for those inhibitions to come down and for you to live out what is going on in your heart. And so, maybe consider, do you have shame over things that you have done or said or thought under the influence of alcohol? Um, But also, we can have tremendous shame by things that were done to us. No doubt, many of us, or some of us here have been violated in our bodies or our souls, or our reputations by other people, and even that can bring tremendous shame to us, as we feel humiliated by others, and exposed, and judged, and rejected. And notice that Noah experiences both of those things. Noah's—it's through the use of his his use of alcohol that he becomes shamed. He becomes exposed. That is his doing. But at the same time, he's also a victim because Ham comes in, sees this, and exposes it and seeks to bring shame to his father by bringing it to his brothers. So a question I think is not, do you have shame? I think shame is a part of our experience as people. The question is really, what do you do with your shame? I would tend to guess that most of us take that shame and bury it in the deepest well of our soul, lock it with a thousand ironclad locks and guard it with a legion of warriors such as anger or humor or substance abuse or work or pleasure. And We don't want anyone to come close to those things or see those things and yet, What's the, what's the end result of that? Isn't it a loss of intimacy? A loss of something that we were created for? To be known by others? Um, there was a, a popular song that came out a few years ago that kind of hinted at this. Uh, the singer said, I, I let you see the parts of me that weren't all that pretty and with a touch you healed them. I think... That reflects a desire that we have to our very core that uh, we've been meant for intimacy with one another, with, with our God. And yet, our response to this, this thing in our heart is to push away. Uh, we want that intimacy, but it comes at too great of a cost. It's just too risky. If I open myself up and I reveal that, what, what's going to happen? But friends, what we've got to see is that we have a God who sees. We have a God who knows exactly what is going on, what has gone in our lives, and in the midst of that, He loves us. He loves you, and He is pursuing after you. Uh, uh, Knowing that we have a God that sees can be comforting, but it can be terrifying, because He's a holy God, a righteous and holy God, and There is no place where we can escape from his gaze. And so we're forced to do something with what's going on in our souls. But at the same time, he's a loving and compassionate and gracious and gentle God. And so he is one that pursues after us in love to know us, to be intimate with us, to allow us to recognize and admit to him that he is the lover of our soul he is the only one that can provide that true intimacy he is the only one who can grant us peace from the shame and in our passage notice what what this God who sees notice what it is that he does so far God hasn't shown up on the page but he's there what he does is he brings us with him into the tent He sees what's going on with Noah, and he wants us to see it, but not so that we would gawk at Noah, not so that we would ridicule Noah, but so that we would see what God does with Noah's shame. So we go from shame exposed to shame covered. What God does is he covers Noah's shame. It says in verse 23 then, um, after hearing about it, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards. And covered the nakedness of their father, their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father 's nakedness. Notice the extent to which these two young men go. They turn around, they get a, a garment they are not they 're they're going to be careful not even to see the nakedness of their father they, they've been told of this shame, but they are going to uh, honor and, and show, dig, uh, show honor and dignity to their, husband, to their father. And they, they put this garment on their shoulders and they walk back on each side so that they can cover him up as they go. So they don't look at what's going on with their father. They want to protect his honor and his dignity. And they don't see his nakedness. So how, how do you handle the reputation of others. How do you handle the shame of other people? Um, often, uh, when we hear the dirty secrets of other people, uh, as Proverbs says, they're like choice morsels that go down into our innermost being. We, we love a good gossip story. And we love to be able to share it with others. It's, it's hard for us, it's not natural for us to show uh, honor and dignity in covering over those types of things we forget uh that these things that we hear about other people are those same things that we protect in our very souls we forget that these are people that are created in the image of God often brothers and sisters in Christ instead allow these things to spread like wildfire bringing shame to those around us There is a time, Scripture says, for bringing things into the light. Uh, Ephesians 5 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But this isn't a license for gossip. What this is talking about is when someone is caught in a sin, when there is sin embedded into the heart of a person, we are to bring those things into the light so that this person can understand the benefit of being in light, that being covered and forgiven by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to protect the reputation of people with all of our being, covering over their shame. And notice in this passage, this is happening in the context of a family. And isn't it true that often some of our greatest shame happens in the midst of a relationship that ought to be a place of the greatest intimacy in the midst of the family and parents uh, in the midst of the aggressive pace of life in which we live uh, we forget how easily it is for us to scar our children with our words and with our actions and so let me ask, do you have things that you need to repent of to your children and remind them of how much you love them? Uh, but, chi- but children, uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook either. Uh, don't underestimate uh, the scars that you can live- leave on your parents as well. Uh, I'm not going to share the name, but a well-known uh, contemporary author, in his book on shame, told the story of the, the only time he's ever seen his mother cry was when he had hurtful comments to her uh, in the midst of a car ride. Um, children, your, your parents are giving their lives to love you and they, they think the world of you, and uh, your words can bring real hurt. They're, your parents are flawed and sinful people, and as you get older, you will see that more and more clearly. The question is, will you love them in the midst of that, or will you shame them when you see their faults and isn 't it true that, that in our marriages this one one relationship, if there 's any relationship on this earth where we ought to feel naked and unashamed, uh, this is uh, something that is elusive, this type of intimacy that we want we. Uh, want to be able to share the deep secrets of our heart, but we're terrified, aren't we, of how our spouse will respond. Well, if I tell them of the secret sins that I've been dealing with or the past that they don't know about, what's the look I'm going to get? Is it going to be a look of shock? Is it going to be a look of disgust? And so, friends, we've got this situation where the shame is exposed and then we have the shame that is uncovered and soon Noah wakes up and the shamed one responds. It says um, in verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And what has, had his youngest son done to him? His youngest son had seen and exposed and shamed. When his youngest son knew what had... Headed to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. I don't know if you notice this, but this is the first time that Noah speaks in the book of Genesis. Noah's, Noah's been through an awful lot. The Lord appeared to him, the Lord told him that he, to build an ark. Noah built the ark, Noah, Noah filled the ark with the people and the animals. Noah experienced the destruction of the world. Noah got off the ark, he built an altar, he worshiped the Lord. God entered into covenant. And not until now does Noah speak. And the first thing he says is, Cursed be Canaan. He issues a curse. But he doesn't stop at a curse. He goes to a blessing. He blesses his other two sons. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Uh, Hopefully you're noticing that The curse isn't on Ham, but it's on Canaan. And that there's this repeated refrain of, and let Canaan be the servant of Shem. Let Canaan be the servant of Japheth. And I think what we have here is those two threads, once again, of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that had followed all the way up into Noah. And then Noah and his family had gotten onto the ark. And so when we get on off of the ark and all the people that are to follow, we wonder, does that mean that the seed of the serpent has now died off and we only have the seed of the woman? Noah says no. Cursed be Canaan, Canaan who will become the enemy of God's people in chapters to come, that, that line of the serpent, the, the, the disparity, the, the animosity between God's people and, and the people of uh, the seed of the serpent continues in the, the line of Canaan. And maybe you're wondering why does Noah even have the ability to curse? Because this is an echo back to Genesis chapter 3 when God is cursing the serpent. And all creation, and I think what's going on here is that Noah is acting in a prophetic uh, office of uh, on behalf of the Lord. He is issuing that curse, a curse to Canaan, and a blessing to Shem and Japheth. So there's uh, the curse is not to Ham but to Canaan. Uh, But notice that the blessing isn't to Shem either. It says, "Blessed be the Lord." The God of Shem. Uh, I think Noah is seeing in Shem's behavior that this that this blessing of the covering of his shame is none other than a covering by the Almighty God, and he blesses the Lord of it by, because of it. Uh, Shem's uh, behavior demonstrates that he is a worshipper of the Almighty God. And he is living that out uh, in the midst of uh, the world. Uh, when we get to, when it may God enlarge Japheth, there's a Hebrew pun there. The, the verb to enlarge is similar to the word Japheth. So uh, he's, he's playing a pun there. He's saying, may God bless and uh, make Japheth fruitful. May he uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it says, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. As in, let him participate in that blessing of Shem. Now Shem and Japheth had made a tent or a covering. And so they cover Noah with that tent. And now, uh, now Noah is blessing Japheth and saying, may he dwell in the tents of Shem. I think it's uh, very possible that uh, what we're getting here is a foreshadowing of something that we see as a New Testament reality. Shem is thought to be the father of the Semites, that is, uh, all those of uh, Israeli or uh, Arabic descent. Um, Japheth is thought by commentators to be a father of Gentiles. Uh, So, Abraham soon will come from the line of Shem. The Lord Jesus Himself will come from the line of Shem. And perhaps if we look through New Testament eyes, and we look back to Genesis chapter 9, what we see here is a promise that God will indeed bless the Gentiles through the line of Christ. Through the the tent of Shem. The blessing of the Almighty God that there will be a union in that one singular strand um, as they are grafted in, as the Apostle Paul says. And after this, uh, the text ends with the simple refrain that we should remember back from Genesis chapter 5. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. He is not the deliverer that we had hoped for. He died like his fathers before him. And so just a few points of application as we begin to close on this text. Uh, clearly, I hope you see at this point that the focus of this text is not on Noah's drunkenness, but on his nakedness and the shame that ensues. He's exposed as a result of the drunkenness. He's seen by Ham. He is exposed to his brothers. He is covered by Shem and Japheth. Um, And yet, alcohol does play a significant part of the story. And so I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about it. Um, Notice that in this text, uh, the use of alcohol is more matter-of-fact. It's just Noah planted a vineyard, he drank the wine, he got drunk. Matter-of-fact. And yet we can't... uh, overlook the fact that there is there is a negative tone to it it's as a result of his drunkenness that he is exposed and uh, that comes out of it in fact the 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 use of alcohol kind of gets mixed reviews throughout scripture doesn't it Um, psalm says that god has given wine to gladden the heart of man Um, Ecclesiastes says that wine makes the heart merry. Isaiah 55, uh, uh, God in in that passage says, Buy wine and buy milk from me without money, without price. uh, Pointing to a a lasting, satisfying uh, food and drink that comes only from God. Uh, You remember Lord Jesus turned water into wine. Lord Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton suggesting that he partook of the fruit of the vine. And you'll remember that in the Lord's Supper, which the Lord Jesus instituted, he gives us wine as a picture of the blood that he pours out. And yet, Scripture also does have strong exhortations against the misuse of wine. Proverbs Uh, has numerous uh, statements such as wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler and whoever is led astray by such things is not wise. Uh, The prophets... Uh, exhorted strongly, chastised the people for being uh, misusing strong drink and feeding it to their neighbors so that they would expose their shame and look upon their nakedness. And Ephesians uh, says that we are to not get drunk on wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so I think those two things can serve as guardrails for us as we try to understand how should we as Christians live with the use of alcohol. It's an area of Christian liberty, but it's not something for which uh, is a license to sin. Um, Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, and I will not be mastered by anything. And as a result of that, I think some of us will be comfortable in the use of alcohol, and others of us will not. And as one body loving one another, seeking to preserve the unity of the peace, we need to be sensitive to the sensitivities of our brothers and sisters, while at the same time not judging our brothers and sisters for their use of Christian liberty. Um, But let me ask this question to those of us who do uh, partake of alcohol, is do you go too far? Uh, We are exhorted not to um, be given to drunkenness, Do you, is this become an idol for you? Uh, Have you become mastered by it, as Paul says? Let me ask you to humbly uh, ask your spouse or your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is uh, an important thing. And Paul says that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we need to do it all for the glory of God. So are you doing what you're doing for the glory of God? In our passage, Noah does go too far with his use of alcohol. becomes drunk, and perhaps uh, the shame that you have is a result of that. Maybe it's not. Maybe it has, your shame has nothing to do with alcohol. But I think we can become, be encouraged as we recognize that Jesus Christ, our Savior, became the drunkard to rescue us from our sin and shame. Uh, We would tend to hide. We would hide our shame, bury it deep within our soul. But what did the Lord Jesus do? He came and he willingly gave himself to be stripped bare, to be hung publicly before the entire world and every sin was laid on him. Every sin that is buried within the shame of your heart was laid on Him. And it was put to open disgrace. And He willingly drunk deep of the cup of God's outpoured wrath and fury. And He became drunk with it. And God Himself turned His face in disgust. From the Lord Jesus Christ. Getting the just due for your sin. For what's going on in your heart. He drank it to the dregs. He drank it willingly. And, and, and Hebrews says he did it despising the shame. He did it so that he could cover us with, uh, with his love. He did it so that he would be our champion. So that he would lead us into God's presence. To be... Uh, able to enjoy him and delight in him forever and ever. And so when you struggle with the shame of your sin, recognize this that Christ really and truly did pay for that. Your sins are truly forgiven. They are truly and utterly forgiven, and it's and it's not just that it's forgiven but you've been made beautiful because you have been clothed. Scripture says that if you are in Christ, if you have confessed your sins to Him and you are united to Him, God Himself has made you beautiful with the, the beautiful dress of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who um, knows all and is all wise, Scripture says that if we confess our sins, He says, I remember your sins no more. That's remarkable. He, he forgets better than we do. And the God who sees all says that I no longer see it, but I see my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the perfection and the beauty of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as we are clothed with Him. If you remember Revelation 21, this beautiful, beautiful passage It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's us, beloved, those you and me in the church. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Regardless of how you feel, know that your God has not not turned away from you and, and your shame. He's turned toward you. And He sees you with wonder and delight because He sees His beloved Son and you are wrapped up in His beauty and His glory. Uh, Friends, this is a promise for us when we put our faith in Christ, for us who trust in Christ and Christ alone. And if that is not you, if you are more like Ham, still seeking to expose and ridicule God's people, uh, fighting against Uh, the gaze of our Lord, then uh, your shame is real. We tell you this in love. Your shame is real, and the curse that fell on our Lord Jesus Christ for His people is being reserved for you. That wrath and fury is what awaits you. But let me encourage you with this. The Apostle Paul reminds us that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of the Lord's favor. Canaan was cursed to be the servant of servants, but the Lord Jesus came as the suffering servant. And Can- Canaan was cursed, but Jesus Christ became the curse to deliver us from the curse. As it says, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so uh, you might be at odds with the, with your god. But know this the Lord Jesus Christ came to reconcile to you reconcile you to this god so that you would know his joy and his favor and his, for all eternity. So let me encourage you to repent of your sin and shame and this god will become your god. And this promise of being wrapped up in the love of our Christ is Covering the nakedness of our shame is a promise for us now when we put our faith in Christ and is something that we look forward to with all eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfected glory um, of Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, and we know this hymn well, when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. O beloved, we will no longer be cast away in shame, but brought near in intimate delight, able to gaze deep into the eyes of a God who loves us and who covers us with the beautiful dress of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray pray together. Father, you do indeed know us and you do indeed love us. And while we would shy away from your gaze, we thank you that you draw us near by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you and your goodness, not that you would rebuke us, but that you would cover us with his love, that you would feel the sense of a spirit that dwells even within us. Help us to live in a way that reflects the fact that we know that we have been purchased and adored by the God of the universe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, our hymn of response is...